Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. This is William Dyer with Dyer Conversations. Thanks for joining me on another podcast. Today, special guest, as he's known, Dr. J, or Dr. Kirk Jarris. Dr. J, thanks for joining us, sir. Yeah, thanks for having me. Hey, so look, I wanted to bring Dr. J. I just learned his name is Dr. J, so, or his nickname is. So I'm going to call him that throughout this podcast because I think it's pretty legit. Um, so I wanted to bring him on because I kind of started to connect with him uh, seeing through a affiliate ministry, Apologetics 315, some of his stuff. And I was interested because it seems like he's got a bit of a similar background as I do in theology and also apologetics. So I wanted to pick his brain and hopefully we can learn some stuff today. So Dr. J, thanks for joining us. Uh, why don't you give us a quick rundown of your background? Tell us like how you got to the point where you are Dr. J and you have a nonprofit and you're also doing some other stuff. Tell us about your background. Let's see. I was uh, an undergrad from 06 to 2010. Uh, so fall of 06 to spring of 2010. And then I decided to stick around and I did their MA in Christian apologetics in one calendar year. So, uh, you know, some of those deep questions from high school, you know, I, I still had this interest in theology and apologetics. And so that sort of bled over a little bit through extracurriculars um, in my undergrad and then formally in my, my graduate studies. And so then after I finished that degree, uh, the master's in apologetics from Biola, I got married and my wife and I uh, moved across the pond, lived in London, England for roughly a year. And I did a master's in systematic theology from King's College, London. All right. So, hey, what, what made you move from California all the way over to London? So, yeah, so the, the MA in Systematic Theology from King's College London is it's a formal systematic theology degree, and a, a lot of schools in the States just offer an MA in theology, but I wanted to get an MA in Systematic Theology. And also, uh, a, a second thing that appealed to me about the program was that it was the study of theology, but it was not at an uh, evangelical Christian institution. So over in the UK, uh, many of the publicly funded schools uh, still do theology. They have theology departments, but it's not necessarily a guarantee that they're going to be looking at it from an evangelical perspective. So I was able to read theological literature that, you know, I think is just totally perverse. And I mean that in, in like a I was reading queer theory on the woman of the well and like sexual innuendos, uh, the argument went that Jesus' statements are sexual innuendos. And it's just like, this is nuts. Like, um, there's got to be, okay, so I have a similar desire to not just, like, I feel like, okay, I've heard a lot of conservative, you know, evangelical teachings on X, Y, and Z. So part of me is like, yeah, I want to venture out and I want to hear the uh, the other side, right? And I do, yeah. like, I read books and stuff like that. But then sometimes I get to a point where I'm like, all right, how much of myself am I wasting time? Because this is so outlandish and it's so ridiculous. Yeah. Did you ever feel like that when you were over there? I mean, I was still young enough. I'm not sure I, I viewed it as a waste of time. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, it's very rare to find anyone who has that take you know, in, in society. It's just sort of an ivory tower position. But some other material that I would read, uh, there, there was more application. Um, so sort of philosophical reader response views of interpretation uh, that works itself down into, you know, a relativistic approach to scripture. Uh, so, you know, so, so real, yeah, go ahead. So real quick for people who are listening, the difference sure. between studying theology and studying systematic theology. Yeah. 
Yeah, so um, that difference may also depend as well on what tradition you come from. And so, um, you know, for example, if you go to an evangelical seminary, it's going to plausibly be a lot of like proof texting, uh, combing through scripture to look at sort of a comprehensive view uh, of, of the nature of God. Uh, and um, this program, though, was a little different, especially because it wasn't an evangelical institution. And we looked at uh, 19th and 20th century theologians and philosophers. And so I would read about, um, you know, uh, Emil Brunner and Karl Barth and their views on natural theology. Um, so they, they had a, a debate in the, uh, in the 20th century on, you know, basically the nature of man and revelation. And so some of these concepts that you do get in a systematic theology course uh, in an evangelical institution, but it would be, di it was different. You know, we engaged with these primary sources and it wasn't like, it wasn't always lecture. It was more discussion. It was mm -hmm. far more discussion based, the program. And um, not as many, you know, there were no quizzes. Basically my grade was like three papers. Hmm. Um with a small attendance, you know, percent, but it's like, I mean, three papers for your whole semester, like that's your grade. So you better not screw up. Yeah. Like <laughs> I had, I had a professor, um, you know, one professor I had and he said, Hey, I don't give a test. Cause I don't, I don't believe like they really actually help you to retain knowledge just to memorize something short term. And I was like, yeah, yeah you know, I agree with you. And so he had us write a bunch of, a bunch of papers. And, um, I mean, I was okay with that. Like, you know, I felt like I'm learning by reading the material and writing. Yeah writing these papers. So, but like you said, it's like these papers better be good. <laughs> yeah. So the, uh, the third reason why uh, I looked at the program was it was in the UK and I hadn't taken the GRE, uh, the, the graduate requirement examination for the United States. So if you want to go to grad school, you've got to take the GRE and, uh, the, the Biola, um, MA in apologetics, at least at the time, I'm not sure where it stands today. It was a professional degree. Um, not like an academic thing. And so I hadn't taken the GRE and I'm not a good test taker. And so I wanted to try to avoid that. It's a very rigorous uh, uh, examination. And so, yeah, I basically dodged it by going overseas. Uh, and then I had an MA there and then we came back. And I think within two years, I had started a PhD distance uh, through the University of Aberdeen. Hmm. And... Uh, so, yeah, I, I was able to avoid the GRE altogether. Um, but so continuing on with your original question about sort of where I got to where, where I am, um, I had taken up an interest in the Calvinism-Arminianism debate uh, when I was an undergrad because I was told those were the only two positions. Uh, and I didn't identify as either. And I wasn't confused about what the positions taught either. Um, it's just those didn't express what I thought scripture taught. So I began to study more, and I learned about these semi-Pelagians, uh, 5th century monks from southern France. And I began to learn more about them. They intrigued me, and I started to read the primary sources. And I realized that how they're frequently described is not what they actually believed. So I wrote my master's thesis uh, looking at these guys and looking at the Greek tradition. And so uh, I used that as a launching point for my doctoral dissertation which looked at the Gallic monks, as I call them. Uh, they're originally from Roman Gaul or modern-day France. The Gallic monks, uh, their view of original sin. So that was what my academic book uh, turned out to be about. Uh, and it's uh, it's not published yet. I want to do some revision work on it. Uh, so hopefully we'll, we'll, 
I'll be able to devote some time to finishing that up and get a, a publisher for it. So that's sort of my my interest in theology and apologetics. And over the years uh, in, in grad school, I would start attending the Evangelical Theological Society and would attend paper talks and I would meet theologians, New Testament scholars, and I just started networking. And I, I'm kind of social in that way, I guess kind of would be an understatement. Hmm. Um, and uh, I, so I met some great guys and you know, you see these folks year after year for those that go annually. And that opportunity, you know, led to some some media work. Uh, I started a nonprofit called Defenders Media, and so basically, some of our clients have been theologians and New Testament scholars. I haven't had an OT scholar yet, um, but uh, so yeah, and that sort of led me to doing a podcast with Mike Lacona. Uh, and like then you guys were tag teaming it. Yeah, so I, he's, I, I tell people he's the Batman, I'm the Robin. So if you <laughs> download the Risen Jesus podcast, we've got five or six seasons, something like that. Oh, that's cool. Uh, yeah, I just ask him a bunch of questions. We work through some uh, book material that he's written. And, and uh, for anybody who doesn't know Lacona, like he's, he's pretty big on the topic of the resurrection, also pretty involved in the Gospels. Um, you know, yeah. he's a little bit of a different take on the Gospels that, uh, you know, some people didn't like, but that's a that's a topic sure. for a different day. Yeah, um, that's a but, safe that's a safe uh, a safe <laughs> way. <to put> it. <laughs> yeah, and then um, you know, but hey, you know, good for him for for trying to you know this is what we're always trying to do, right? Push the envelope on seeking truth and and challenge status quo. Um, yeah, but then also like he wrote a book with Gary Habermas on um, the I think it's called what the case for the, the Resur- case for the resurrection. Yeah, case for the resurrection. Uh, I don't know why I can't remember the book. I love the book, um, <laughs> and I love the material in it. So they. You know, Gary Habermas is like world-renowned scholar on the resurrection, so Lacona and him did a great job yeah. on that. So that's pretty cool. You what, guys had a podcast together. Yeah, and what's great about the book, and, and we've gone over this, so the book is geared towards what's called the minimal facts approach. And what's great about the minimal facts approach is that it basically says, let's look at the scholarship uh, and make an argument for the existing scholarship for the, the historical facts that they grant surrounding the resurrection of or the uh the the death and alleged resurrection of jesus the events around that time look at the historical facts and what theory what hypothesis makes the best sense of those facts so it's basically saying hey critical scholarship we're going to play the game that you play and we're going to still win so Mm -hmm. you can create the rules and we're still going to win so that's basically the foundation of the mfa it also serves as a great evangelistic tool because it's like an elevator pitch. Uh, you can you can get it out within two minutes, ninety seconds, two minutes. Uh, it's a short conversation, so there's it's a strategy as a tool for reaching people with demonstrating, uh, you know, why we can be reasonable in thinking Jesus rose from the dead. Yeah. I've, so yeah, that's I've, that's a great book. Yeah, I've taught um, like you know seminars, talks, and all sorts of different things, and I've used that as as kind of like my closing session you know what i mean it's like i'm building on like how do we know truth exists how do we know the bible's reliable what about miracles and then it's like that's like that's the capstone of it all and so people really enjoy that um like you said i think it appeals to a great audience so y'all's podcast kind of what does it unpack some of those things gets in more of the weeds yeah it unpacks uh some of that material uh one season i think was devoted to the synoptic problem um and uh, a number of the seasons were devoted to Mike's larger book uh, on the resurrection, the historiographical approach. And so we went through some of the chapters, the material. Of course, 
you know, what you can cover in a podcast is only so thin compared to Mike's big book is massive. Uh, so yeah. So um, now, so you got, you got your nonprofit, right? You're doing, are you still doing that podcast on Mike? So that was seasonal and we yeah. haven't done a season. I can't remember if we did one last year or not. Maybe we did. Um, yeah. And, and then I did one season of a different podcast with Craig Keener called the Bible backgrounds. No, podcast. you didn't Craig. No way. I like Craig. I yeah, mean, like, in the guy. sense of, like, I've never met him, but, like, I've read a bunch of his books, and I'm like, I like this guy. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's great. And and a, and a real great person in real life. A humble man, uh, meek and gentle, and, um, I really yeah. thought, so So Craig Keener, he's one of those scholars where, like, he'll write a book, and every page will have more footnotes than actually material <laughs> yes. on the page. Um, you know, and so, like, I, I have a problem where when I read a book, I want to read every single footnote. And yeah. then, so then, like, reading some of his books, I just have to go, you know what? I don't need to read all his footnotes. It's okay. Um, but his book on his, um, his book on revelation that he did for whatever that commented, the NIV commentary series. Um, I thought that was really like, it was really fairly handled. You know, he didn't go like really far swing in one way or the other. I thought he was really good at sticking. Like mm. th- this is what we can know, you know, without going off into a bunch of speculation. Sure. Um, so I would recommend that if anybody doesn't know who Craig Keener is, but you're also interested in Revelation, get that book. So you did okay. So you did that podcast with him. You also have your um, your own stuff. Right? Yeah. So Veracity Hill is my speaking teaching ministry. I did a podcast for four years by the same name, Veracity Hill, and uh, I took a hiatus from it. Uh, some stuff was a different job for a short season, and uh, I'm but I'm back to doing it and. Uh, not the podcast, but I've been doing video series. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, um, uh, you know, one of those video series we put out last year was called Misquoting Ehrman. Uh, came out late last year. That was an interesting series because I, um, I didn't, in, I didn't go into it intending to publish what I did. So I wanted to read Ehrman's book. Uh, cover to cover, misquoting Jesus. You know, this is the big one that he's known for. He's right. written a number of other books, but real misquoting quick, real, Jesus. Yeah, real quick, Bart Ehrman, right? Bart yeah, Ehrman Bart, is Bart. like New Testament scholar, UNC Chapel Hill. Like, I yeah, think he's yeah. like dean of New Testament, or I don't know, something like that. He's pretty high up, like really well known scholar in the New Testament world. But he's also an not ex, a Christian. Yeah, an ex evangelical yeah. calls himself right. an agnostic. Yeah. Um, so very he, interesting. He is, he is the Darth Vader of the story, right? <laughs> um, he sort of has like an Anakin Skywalker um, a pre-story, uh, prequel, right? Because he was a Christian, and now, now he's no longer a Christian. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, so, yeah, he's sort of the, the enemy. And, and for many people, he's like enemy number one, or he's like the boogeyman. Because um, so he's popular. Because he's, po- he's written popular books that get out there yeah, to the pop culture. he's influential, right? Yeah. Right, he's influential, so his ideas do impact people. And so this book, you know, was uh, influential and impactful for, for people. So I wanted to read it cover to cover uh, because I had heard about Ehrman's views and positions. I, I had listened to lectures and talks and, you know, slides that included some of his material. So I wanted to see for myself. OK, well, as I was reading the book, I realized that what a number of Christian New Testament scholars, evangelical New Testament scholars had said about Ehrman and his positions were not accurately reflected in the book. Hmm. So, you know, for instance, some scholars would say that Ehrman doesn't nuance the the manuscript tradition 
or you know, he doesn't talk about how these are just scribal errors, you know. But that was false. I mean, Ehrman clearly does that, you know, from one paragraph, which is a little, you know, I'm happy to say a bit more provocative. You know, one famous line is, you know, we don't have we don't have the copies of the copies of the copies, right? I mean, that's sort of a line that he said, which I mean, at the rigid level, that's true. We don't. Uh, we don't have the originals. And in many cases, we don't have the copies of the copies. But to only take that in isolation, right, is is the problem. Because in the very next paragraph, Ehrman says, sometimes these the vast majority of these mistakes are pointless, meaningless. It means nothing. So, and in a debate with Dan Wallace, uh, I'd have to go back, check my notes. I believe Ehrman grants that less than 1% of the, the textual variants are... Uh, meaningful and significant, something like that. I'd have to check my notes again, but that it's just a minuscule, small number. At any rate, but the Christian apologists don't say that Ehrman makes that distinction. So, you know, basically I did this video series, a six-part video series, calling for a bit of fairness uh, for Ehrman because Christian apologists, we're supposed to be the truth defenders, and we haven't defended the truth of Ehrman's position, at least as it was written in in the book at that time. So I'm gonna I'm gonna say I'm gonna say this because I'm not gonna ask you and put you on the spot. So I'm gonna say this. I'll put myself on the hot seat. <laughs> I believe. Okay, this is just me. Maybe I'm wrong. Okay, maybe I'm a little bit too pessimistic here. But I believe that even Christians, good-hearted Christians, we get lazy and we don't go to the original sources, and we end up like if I know you and I like you, and I trust you, right? You say something, sometimes I'm like, well, I'm just going to take that, and then I can repeat that, right? right? Because right. you're a trusted source. But it's like, yeah. you can't always do that, you know, especially if you're going to start speaking. You know, it's one thing for me to listen to your lecture and be like, okay, I, I'm going to kind of take that. I, You know, I think he does good work. I'm going to take that, and that's kind of like what I believe until I hear something otherwise. But then if I'm going to start going out and teaching something, yeah. I need to make sure that I can actually back it up with the original sources and not, well, I heard it through somebody who heard it through somebody who actually said they read the book. Yeah, right. You know? Exactly. Yeah, no, that's fair. I'm happy to agree with what you said there. Uh, and in that this particular case in the video series for people who watch, I document these instances. I mean, we're, and we're talking heavy hitters in New Testament scholarship, like uh, like Peter J. Williams. Uh, and uh, So you actually you call know, people by name. Oh, yeah. Good for uh, Greg, you. Greg Kokel does it, uh, and Nick yeah. Perrin, who's now the president of TEDS in the northern suburbs of Chicago. So, I mean, yeah, I do call these folks out by name because they are they are professionals. They publish. They put their name to it, and I think that's fair game. Good for and you. And also, I mean, I don't want to speak vaguely. You know, there mm-hmm. are some people who speak vaguely, and all of a sudden you're creating fictional straw men who uh, don't even exist mm-hmm. so that's one of my pet peeves because people are attacking things that don't exist uh, nobody believes that so i want to give an explicit example so i could think of some some folks uh who do this in, in apologetics but i won't i'll give one example with the so-called semi-pelagians so when i studied the primary sources i came away realizing that the common definition of a semi-pelagian was not what john cassian Vincent of Lorenz or Faustus of Fries believed. And so when people attack such and such as semi-Pelagian, there's no such thing as semi-Pelagianism. I mean, it's not there. It doesn't exist. Uh, Roger Olson and Michael Horton think that the vast majority of Americans are semi-Pelagians. I vehemently disagree. I think they've, they've used this tradition of a definition 
and have applied it to a populace um, who, who don't believe these things. So, yeah, I'm happy to call, call people out by name so we can get specific. Say, hey, give me an example of this, and let's, let's look, look at it. So I, I have a similar, um, I don't know, bent to me, right? Uh, ever since the, I went into law enforcement, that's what I do for my day job, uh, you know, this idea of needing to actually establish the evidence for yourself to be able to present a case, right? It's become big to me. And so I would say early on, you know, becoming a Christian, early 2000s for me, um, you know, you hear people that you're like, wow, these people are really smart. They seem like they know exactly what they're talking about. And then you just regurgitate, right? Because you respect them and you know them. And then I got to a certain point where I was like, you know, I'm tired of regurgitating what other people say. Like, I want to actually learn this stuff myself or figure it out myself. And that's the same deal, right? Like, I heard a lot of stuff about, you know, oh, this is what the Catholics believe. This is what the Pentecostals believe. This is what the, these people believe, whatever. Yeah. And then I started yeah. to, I mean, it was somewhat true, but it's like, well, it's a little bit more nuanced than that. It's a little bit more, um, I don't know, scalable. You know, like not everybody fits into that ni- nice little box. And so that really helped me to have some objectivity. And then, like I said, going into law enforcement and then getting into apologetics, I realized the same thing that like you did is like, we repeat certain things. But if you actually go back and read the books, it's like, well, you know, th- this is not this is not the same thing. I don't know where you guys got what you're saying, but this yep. is completely different. So let's let's talk about Barter and Ehrman a little bit more because um, I kind of want to go down that rabbit trail. Right. So we, we've for anybody who doesn't know him again, big time name in New Testament scholarship. He's not a Christian. Um but what he's done is he's taken the scholarly work that can be very, very technical and nuanced and, you know, a lot of data, and he's written it at a pop, popular level, right? So he writes these books that are like 200 pages, and they're not super technical, um, but it has just enough in there to make people think that they're reading like deep scholarly material. And then, of course, he, he comes to radically different conclusions of what a conservative evangelical Christian would, and that's made him popular. You know, um, you know, because people buy into it and they're like, aha, see, I knew this whole Christian thing wasn't true. I knew the Bible wasn't reliable. And here's a person with a Ph.D. who's who's saying that exact thing. Um, So. You wrote articles about Ehrman, right? Um, Yeah. So depends on what you mean by articles. Well, I Um, saw I saw where you had showed the other day where he reposted. Yeah. So you wrote about him after this uh, six after the six-part series. So, well, let me back up. So I, I initially met Bart. Uh, of course, I knew of him, but I invited him to speak at a Christian conference, and uh, that was in 2019. And it was the first time he had spoken at a Christian conference uh, since he was a Christian, you know, no 30 way. years ago. And it was very well received. He spoke highly of it. And he, he blogged about his experience the following day or the following weekday or something. And... Um, what he wrote, you know, was sort of, um, I was very appreciative. He, he said he was greeted warmly. And, but, but he, what was intriguing was his observation about Christian apologetics as a, as a field has changed and shifted. Uh, basically, it, it's now become, let's see, how did he phrase it? Uh, something like, and I'm quoting here, possibly for verbatim, it's become an intellectually sustainable form of discourse. Hmm. So, of course, that's not to say you have to agree with the arguments, mm-hmm. but from what Ehrman as a student was used to was maybe what you and I might consider proof texting or, you know, a derogatory term, Bible thumping. 
uh, or, know, or like it, the, or like the sort of apologetics, like we know how old the Earth is because of the moon dust that's layered on the yeah, moon, like that right. sort of yeah, stuff. It's a real low quality form of apologetics. Yeah, um, to something that re- requires study, research, writing, publication. So I, you know, I think he recognized that, which was great. So uh, he blogged about that. Sometime later, um, he reached out to me um, and uh, asked if I would make a contribution to the site. Uh, he was inviting uh, people, uh, guests, I forget what they called them, celebrity guest posts or something like that. Um, and so I had a draft finished in June and just it just got published um, last week. So I picked the subject of um, what I call the growing landscape of Christian apologetics. And I wanted to use the opportunity to, um, to talk about three areas in which Christian theology and Christian philosophy have pushed the conversation forward. And so I looked at the logical problem of evil. That's uh, one issue in which atheists grant that Alvin Plantinga has resolved the issue. Of course, those conversations have shifted into the evidential problem of evil, but it's something we can say, hey, look, that's done. Let's move mm-hmm. on to the next issue. And um, so let's stop raising that objection, which is about the contradictory aspects or the alleged contradictory aspects of God's existence and the existence of evil. That was the first one. The second one was on the relationship between science and religion and how a lot of publications, uh, books published from academic presses uh, are written by these scholars demonstrating that a lot of what's talked about in society about this conflict, or what's called the conflict hypothesis between science and religion, is not the way that Christian theologians uh, and philosophers have viewed the issue, uh, traditionally speaking. And so that this is sort of a modern uh, uh, innovation in the conversation. Granted, I mean, the average ma and pa who work on a farm aren't, you know, their, their takes on, say, uh, that relationship between science and religion may be different than what, you know, Isaac Newton believed. Uh, so, yeah, you're going you're gonna to see that. But th- what was great about that second point was I only selected academic presses. So no one could accuse me of picking a Christian publisher arguing for a Christian position. So anything that was defended in those books is by an academic press. Uh, the third point was on gospel differences and how we really look more at the context and backgrounds of the gospels to understand them better. Uh, so it's not just, you know, reading the texts and smashing them together to make sense of difficulties. Uh, so, yeah, that's the quick version. But basically, that essay is about that. And so, yeah, I'm grateful for the opportunity to post at his site. I've engaged with the commenters. Uh, you know, his following is largely non-Christian. There's a mixture of atheists, agnostics, uh, um, Muslims. Uh, there's, yeah, there's a, a mix of people who follow his work. Um, but evangelical Christians are just a fraction uh, of his website subscribers. Because in order to comment, you've got to be a a website subscriber, which I think is just a few bucks a month, four or five bucks a month, maybe. Uh, So so what was it like meeting him? Did did you get to hang out with him at all? Yeah, I was able to get coffee with him. um, And, you know, I had, uh, I think I'd picked him up at the airport uh, or something like that. I was transporting him. but yeah, so we were able to chat, and I um, I got to learn more about him. And uh, he really considers his success a, a matter of basically just dumb luck. 
<laughs> because um, he's he's talked about this a little bit. Basically, he ended up on NPR two times in the same week, which like never happens for NPR guests. And so it was a, a huge accident, like statistically astronomical that that would happen. I, I guess NPR has got a policy not to bring on the same expert within the, a week's time. And so then I think it was the Washington Post did some uh, article, some piece about this occurrence. So so he's on NPR radio, okay? And then he uh, he gets a, a column in the Washington Post about him. That gets the attention of John Stewart, uh, for, who was doing The Daily Show at the time. And boom, he's off and running. Um, you know, so it was just sort of, again, just these weird dominoes that fell. And, uh, you know, so he's gotten a lot of traction, of course, and sold some books and uh, so here's yeah, what, that was fun hearing about that from his perspective directly. So here's what I find interesting about about Bart Ehrman, and this is like so I've read a couple of his books too because I was like you know let me let me look at the the original sources here to see what these other people are saying because I want to see what the challenge is right. Um, so I'm reading his book. I've you know I read misquoting Jesus, but I read Jesus interrupted. Right. Okay. And uh, this is what I found interesting. So I'm going to read you a quote here. It's on page 18 of Jesus interrupted. Okay. He, he's talking about his history of going through grad school and getting his PhD and kind of coming to terms with, oh, the historical critical method and learning all these, you know, problems, so-called problems with the Bible and, um, you yeah. know, what it did to him internally and, and his classmates. He said, uh, historical critical approaches to the Bible came to many of them, talking about his classmates, as a shock in seminary, but their faith withstood, their faith withstood the shock. In my case, historical criticism led me to question my faith, not just its superficial aspects, but it's very hard. Yet, this is what I found interesting, yet it was the problem of suffering, not a historical approach to the Bible, that led me to agnosticism. So I'm like, so you're writing all these books about so-called problems with the Bible and why people shouldn't trust it. Yet for you, that was not the stuff that led you to agnosticism. It was the problem of evil. So why don't you write a book about the problem of evil? You know, I know he's a New Testament scholar, but still, you know, that was yeah. like, it started to make me question, like, what are we doing here? Why are we writing these books if that's not the issue? So he, he ended up did writing one. Um, I, I'd have to look at the dates uh, about when that would happen. But he did end up writing a book on the problem of evil uh, called God's Problem. Um, and I haven't read it to co- cover to cover. Um, so, but I, I, I can say that that book has not been received as well as his other books. So I'm just trying to say that objectively. Yeah. Well, he's not a philosopher, of, so. Right, he's not, uh, or a theologian. Uh, so, yeah, as a New Testament scholar, it's a little, I mean, I'm safe in saying this, it's, it's out of his field. Um, but, um, but, of course, everyone's got views on these things. Mm-hmm, sure. I'm not a New Testament scholar, and yet every now and again I'm, I'm writing on New Testament stuff. Uh, so, you know, it does happen. There's crossover. Um so, yeah, so he does address it, but uh, it is interesting because for him, that is explicitly stated his, his reason uh, for uh, why he, you know, doubt, doubts God's existence. Um, and uh, he, he's gone on a journey of sorts. You know, I think sometime last year he blogged about some spiritual experience he, he had as he was meditating. Uh, I don't exactly know what that was. Um, so... Yeah, you know, uh, the way I view it, and and again, Christian apologists, you know, we've got our different perspectives on this, but, um, you know, we should be praying for Bart. For sure. Uh, We we should be, uh, just like 1 Peter 3.15 says, right, we we should be gentle uh, in our approach 
and uh, we want to win the respect of, of outsiders. Um, so we want to be held blameless. So, you know, for example, with this misquoting Ehrman series, you know, I put this out because I didn't see anybody, anybody in Christian apologetics defending Ehrman against the straw man attacks. And that's simply put, not fair to him. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I'd like to think that I've sort of earned some respect with him and some of his followers. Uh, some of them have said as much. Um, you know, of course, I'm not going to say things just to please them, just to win the respect. But I saw uh, a need here and thought, you know, it's it's worth um, putting this out. I had some, I had a couple people advise me not to do it. <laughs> uh, Why? But I think there's, well, because I'm, I'm, you know, I'm defending Darth Vader, right? I'm defending the guy who's leading Christians astray. No, you're and defending so this, truth. Well, right. So some people, they, they view this as potentially hurting my reputation. Um, and, you know, for me, I'm just kind of like a, well, so what? I mean, you know, I'd rather be known for the guy who's going to seek the truth and defend the truth mm-hmm. instead of someone who's just going to, you know, live in church culture uh, yeah. where you can't talk about some issues and, and others. I mean, you know, I I really don't care much for church culture. Uh, of course, I, I go to church. I'm, you know, I take my family to church every Sunday and I enjoy Christian worship, community, fellowship of believers. Uh, you know, we've been part of a small group. But it's like there are these topics in, in church culture you just don't talk about, mm-hmm. you know, and it's like, like, let me give you a great example. When's the last time you heard a sermon on divorce and remarriage? Yep. So my wife and I. When's the last time a pastor talked? And you know why they don't? Because because that issue has infiltrated the Christian community at large. My and wife, so yeah. it's all of a sudden a no-go because it's awkward for people. But now mm-hmm. we can't even teach it from the pulpits about Christian living. Yeah, you're scared to hurt people's feelings. I mean, look, there's a, there's a there's obviously a conversation to have about tact, but like you said, like you can't put things off topic. If they're in the scriptures, you have to talk about them. You know, one of my favorite yeah. verses that, uh, well, it's become one of my favorite verses because I've seen such a filtering from preachers who are just, I don't know. Okay. I know this might be a strong way to put it. I'm going to say that. I don't know these people personally. Some of them I do, but I, I see their sermons. I hear their sermons. And all I can think is, what is it? Is it fear? Like, are, are you just scared? Like, are you scared to talk about this stuff because God's commanded? You know, God has given you a platform to talk about this stuff. So, yeah. do what you're supposed to do. And so, one well, of my fa- one of my verses that's come up that's become one of my favorites is when Paul in the Book of Acts says, "I have not chatted away from explaining to you the whole counsel of God." It's like if it's in the Bible, you got to talk about it. And yeah. so, you know, my wife and I were we've been discussing that recently, like. When's the last time you heard a sermon on sexual immorality? So, yeah, I mean, I've you know? heard I've heard some on on adultery and pornography. Um, so I, I have heard some of those here and there. Um, but again, for me, like divorce and remarriage, I mean, mm-hmm. that is it's huge. And I've never, I think I'm safe in saying, never heard a sermon in my entire life on that. Yeah, that said. Well, so, I, you know, you yeah. got you got to you got to seek truth. I mean, you know, like you said, I don't think you were defending Ehrman in the sense of like defending him personally. You're defending. We are trying to be honest 
And if we're going to critique somebody, we need to critique what they are actually saying. And because it's, I mean, if you really think about it, it's while you are not intending to, you're lying. If you say, this is what, you know, Kirk says, and I think he's wrong, but you didn't say that. Well, it's, it's false. Yeah. 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 yeah, Lying. I'm not sure I'd call it lying, but I'm I'm happy to say with misleading. Yeah. Yeah. That's probably a better word. Yeah. Yeah, Because lying serves intent. Yeah, even if right, yeah, if it's not your intention, you're misleading people away sure. from uh, a truthful description of reality. So, yeah. so, okay, so let's go back. All right, let's go back. We talked about Bart a little bit, but I want to talk about your doctoral work with Calvinism okay. and, and Arminianism and Semiplagianism. So, again, for people who don't have much of a theological background, and yes, we're just touching surface level here, but give us a little synopsis of here's what calvinism is here's what arminianism is oh so we, man so people can kind of understand <laughs> what the, what the debate is give us the straw man calvinism the straw man arminianism uh well i i, I won't give you the straw man at least that's not my intent to do so um yeah i was just kidding so yeah, yeah yeah so yeah there and there are different ways to describe these these camps so this debate pertains to uh, interpretations of scripture about divine sovereignty. So what does it mean to say God is sovereign about the nature of mankind, uh, about the effects of the fall. So that's my specific expertise, the effects of the fall, uh, divine grace and what stage grace comes into play. Uh, the order of salvation. So if man has fallen, how fallen is he? What type of grace is required? Has God, uh, predestined or pre-selected him uh, to be saved or not to be saved? Uh, how does God's predestination work? Uh, and then, and then there are issues flowing from that, such as uh, the atoning work of Christ, and uh, is it possible that people can lose their salvation? Those are sort of, I might call those secondary. They they flow mm-hmm. naturally from these prior questions. Uh, so, but really the, the debate really is around those first prior ones. Uh, so Calvinists hold uh, to a meticulous sense of divine sovereignty. I'm not going to u- use the terms strong or weak because, you know, one gives the connotation, all oh, the other positions, a weak position. Uh, that's not necessarily the case. Uh, Calvinism holds to a meticulous sense of divine sovereignty, that God has orchestrated everything that's happened, including the good things and the bad things. And Arminianism says, well, God uh, allows these things to happen, uh, but he didn't orchestrate, he didn't uh, uh, meticulously plan for those evil actions to have occurred. And uh, Calvinists believe that God has predestined a select amount of individuals uh, for eternal life, and some Calvinists hold to the uh, double, what's called double predestination, this idea that God also picked people to be damned. Uh, other Calvinists say he sort of just passed over. Whether that's a meaningful difference is, is part of the debate. Uh, Arminians believe in this concept of predestination, but that God uh, selected these individuals based on his foreknowledge of what the individual would choose. Uh, so... Now, I, my own view is different from this. I, I hold to the priority of corporate election, this idea that uh, what we read in Scripture about election is about a corporate group, and an individual is elect insofar as they're part of the corporate group. So that's a, 
I know that's sort of a narrow distinction, but I really think that's what Scripture teaches, and it doesn't require getting into the Calvinism, Arminianism positions on election. Um, so regarding the nature of man, there are different takes here. So Calvinists affirm what's called total depravity. Depending upon which Arminian you're talking to, maybe they affirm total depravity. Uh, the, the classical view, the Wesleyans tend to shy away from it. Uh, and then if, if one of the critical things for my research was this idea within total depravity is the doctrine of inability. Hmm. Are humans able to do an objectively good action? Uh, does, does the fall affect mankind so much that we can do any good, period? Now, I'm not talking about a good that earns your salvation. That's that's impossible. Uh, Calvinists agree with that. Uh, Arminians agree with that. And even the Gallic monks agreed with that, that uh, you cannot earn your salvation. But do you retain the, the seeds of goodness or the seeds of virtue as it's in the classical literature, such that you can perform a, an objectively good action, an action that's pleasing in God's eyes? So the Calvinists would say, no, you can't. You can't do that. And even if an atheist appears to do some civic good, like walking grandma across the street, at the end of the day, it's a selfish, evil action because of the intent, because of the heart. Uh, the Arminian may have a different take. It may depend on who you're talking to. Um, but the certainly the classical Arminian would hold something uh, of, of that. They would posit what's called common grace, that God's grace has come and sort of self-corrected, uh, not self-corrected, but corrected the nature of man such that man can do these good actions. Uh, and uh, But these Gallic monks, uh, and I argue the tradition that they come from, the, the Greek Eastern tradition, basically held that uh, these seeds of goodness remain, and, and you can do a good action without positing what I call super added grace. I know this is getting more technical, um, but it's this idea that if the human does a good free will action, it is because of divine grace from how God has created them to function. So there still is grace. It's just the, the what Faustus of Rees calls the prima grazia, the first grace. It's not because of a super added grace such as common grace, or for the Calvinist, eventually, uh, one would be regenerative, so regenerative grace. Uh, and that, that does a work upon the, the will of man. Uh, but, but that's only to say that then on the Calvinist view that Christians can perform objectively good actions. Uh, so yeah, on my view, uh, I think that there are non-Christians who can perform objectively good actions, but this does not merit salvation by any means. Uh, so so let's, let, me, let me go back to this, right? So would you say it's fair uh, from your study that Calvinists, it, generally, right? Because there's all sorts of spectrums of everybody. Calvinists sure. generally, when they um, talk about, like, especially like the fall. Okay, so let's talk about the effects of the fall. So Adam and Eve, they sin, and then something is passed to us, right? Like mm -hmm. that's the big question. How am I in the 21st century affected because of what they did. All right. And one of the things that they say, so correct me if I'm wrong, is that because of their sin, 
now all of man's will is bound, which means we cannot um, positively respond to the gospel unless God first comes in to regenerate us miraculously, and now he turns our will to a point where we actually can do the good of responding to the gospel. Yeah, the Calvinists might go further than that, actually. And, and again, maybe it depends on who, which Calvinist you're talking to. But um, the Calvinists, at least how they describe it, even though it may play out the way you've you've stated, they might say, not only is your will bound, um, but you're dead. You're spiritually dead. You're wicked. You can't do anything that's good. Uh, so this notion of spiritual death, you know, I've heard it ample times. Dead means dead. You know, of course, uh, my own take is these are analogies Paul mm-hmm. is using, right? You're dead, but you're blind. Well, how can you be blind if you're dead, right? The, you can't have both. Uh, you're a slave. Well, how can you be a slave if you're dead? Uh, so, you know, we need to recognize these analogies for what they are, analogies, and we need to analyze the referent uh, for which these analogies refer to. So, right. So I don't, uh, I don't agree with the Calvinist take on the nature of man, but yeah, that's the way or at least one of the ways Calvinists would say. So they think that uh, the freedom of the will is not like the, uh, the ability to choose between two options, but rather they would say the freedom to do as you will, dot, 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 which is only to select what is evil mm-hmm. all the time. I mean, now that's not the, the, it's not about the degree of evil, like you're not going to be murdering and stealing all the time, but that your intent is, the the intent of your heart is always wicked. So even if it's a small thing, uh, it will always be evil. And and some people might think, well, I don't believe that. And and that's not really what they believe. Yes, read John Calvin, uh, read the systematic theologians. This is really what Calvinists believe about the will of man. And I had. To, so I'm, I was debating one of my my buddies. Um, he's he's very intellectual, but he's had no formal training in the Bible. But he's very intellectual. Um, you know, he's an engineer and he reads a lot of stuff on the Bible. But he's never, you know, not that not that you can't know a lot or correct somebody who has a PhD in the Bible if you don't. But I'm just saying, like, he hasn't had the formal training, but he's very yeah. smart. And so this is the debate that I was that I always have with him about Calvinist is like. I understand that the people you may talk to today who call themselves Calvinists don't believe exactly what I'm laying out. However, the official Calvinist doctrine is this, you know, like here's, like you said, here's what John Calvin said. Here's what, you know, their, their doctrines say, here's what their contemporary theologian books are saying, you know, this is, this is what they teach. And so, you know, a lot of people on the lay level, they don't necessarily know. Maybe they grew up in a church and that church is reformed, you know, or Calvinistic, whatever they want to call themselves. And they just go, oh, well, I'm, I'm a Calvinist. But they don't know the implications yeah. of these things. The same thing with oh, somebody yeah. who's an Arminian. You know, same so, thing. So, I mean, I know, I know individuals who have gone to Presbyterian churches their whole life. And they didn't even know that mm-hmm. this is the beliefs of the Presbyterian church. Yep. So... Yeah, but now to be fair, you could come across people like that in a number of different church circumstances. Oh, one hundred percent. Yeah, but I think you know, from where I stand in my position, I think that that teaching is so inaccurate of biblical teaching and what we actually see that you know it, it is it's a provocative teaching. Um, it, now, some Calvinists are happy to say it's a provocative teaching because they think it's biblical teaching. Mm-hmm. Um, but to me, I say, no, that's not, you know, I don't think that accurately describes reality or what the scripture teaches and uh, it should be rejected. 
so so a so, real quick breakdown. Um, you know, some people who are way over here on this side would say like, all right, your will is bound, right? You can only do what your will is and your will is evil and corrupt and, and horrible. Yeah. So you're only going to will the bad things. You cannot respond to the gospel unless God miraculously regenerates you, but you're also guilty. Right. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, this idea of guilt. Yeah. So you're guilty of Adam's sin. And that's the whole concept of like, you have to have original sin taken care of. Right. Um, yeah. And then there you have, go ahead. Yeah. I was, I was just kind of priming the pump. Yeah, there so you there, go there ahead. are different views of, um, the the mode through which one is is um deemed guilty and you know a lot of non-calvinists they'll so let me i I know i defended ermine's positions um and and let me take a moment to defend augustine so saint augustine augustine i call him augustine um some non-calvinists will say oh well you know he held to traducianism as as the means through which you know uh someone was sin was passed on and was deemed guilty <clears throat> he actually goes back augustine when you read him he takes three different positions over the course of his uh career and in the end he he becomes agnostic he basically says he admits this that he doesn't know at the end of the day he doesn't know so he's a bit more modest in his positions here than some non non-calvinists would give him credit for uh so i think we've got to be fair to augustine on that but okay, so there's there's different views on this. Um, so one is the the tradition theory, which is that basically when when Adam sinned, um, sin was passed on through his seed. So um, yes, I'm referring to you know procreation, and uh, so that's how each human nature is is created. So for Augustine, he, he eventually comes to believe that that even sex itself is sinful. And, um, and and not an objectively good thing, which is of course a part is a, is a fascinating position to hold, given uh, given the instruction uh, you know that God gives Adam and Eve uh, to you know basically procreate, fill the earth, care for it, you know. Um, so there's the tradition view. There's a federal headship view, and this is the view that you see more in uh, Reformed capital R perspectives in Calvin. Um, this idea that Adam is our representative. So they might give an analogy like the United States government, um, that when the president does something, it's as if he's he's acting on behalf of us. So if he's guilty of something, then we're all guilty of it. Uh, so that's in virtue of us being Americans, for instance. Uh, so those are the two major views of, of how guilt is passed on. There are some other ones um, that I won't get into. They're not as, as popular. Of course, another position is just to simply deny that humans inherit the guilt of Adam. Uh, I, I sometimes like to say the very guilt of Adam, because that's what some people have advocated, that we have Adam's guilt. Uh, and I think this does come, um, there's some miscommunication and confusion in, in when you read the Church Fathers uh, about this language. Uh, and, uh, and what I mean is some Church Fathers talked about Basically, when we sin, we sin like Adam. So this this analogy view, and so you do see some of this. Uh, I, I think with the notion of guilt, um, that you know Adam's guilt, but this is speaking analogically. So you do see that with some of the church fathers, but I I, I don't believe that's the case with Calvin uh, or Augustine. Uh, so that's that's out there as well. But so yeah, so the idea is the other 
camp is just a rejection that um, infants, when they die, uh, they don't have Adam's sin. And they themselves are not guilty because they have not committed a sin themselves. So you see this more commonly in the Wesleyan circles with the age of accountability. So that might be familiar to Pentecostals um, or Assemblies of God folk um, or Wesleyans, this idea of the age of accountability. So, yeah, that's sort of getting into, into guilt. Um, I know this is just very surface level. Things can go a lot deeper, but um, yeah, that's so sort of a quick survey. When you when you started studying this stuff out and you were talking about it, you realized, like, no, these people are not semi-Pelagians. What do you, what do you think... What do you think semi-Pelagian is? Or do you think there is nothing like that is that? So yeah, first we need to ask the question, what is semi-Pelagianism or how is it defined? So the common definition that you might see in the Evangelical Dictionary of Theology is the notion that individuals can take the first step towards salvation apart from divine grace. So I had mentioned that for the Calvinists, in order to be saved, you need to be regenerated by God. Your will needs to be regenerated. So this is regenerative grace. The Arminians believe that you need to have uh, provenient grace. So not just common grace for doing objectively good actions, but provenient grace in order to accept the gospel message. And so those are two different notions um, of grace. And for the common definition of semi-Pelagianism, it's as if man could do something prior to these grace prior to these grace options coming in. Um, and I basically reject this definition as accurately describing John Cassian, Vincent of Lorenz, and Faustus of Rees, because they did believe in divine grace for every action for every good action that a human does but they grounded grace differently you see for the westerners uh for us protestants and even for augustine it's a debate what comes first in the order of salvation is it human free will or divine grace and augustine says this multiple times that he wrestled and ultimately in the end the grace of god won out okay so this is an either or scenario. And you see this with Calvinism and you see this with Arminianism. For the Gallic monks and for the Eastern tradition from which they come, it is not an either or, it's a both and. These are not mutually exclusive terms that when humans perform a free will action, that is the grace of God working. So they don't separate nature and grace like Augustine does and Augustine, of course, is a big influence on the Reformers, so it's natural that we would also see these uh, different models coming from that later Augustinian tradition. I say later Augustinian tradition because the early Augustine uh, was a bit more Eastern in his views, uh, and the Gallic monks used his earlier writings against him. So mm -hmm. that's it's a fascinating thing to see when you go deep into the primary sources. Uh, so... This common definition, this idea that humans can take the first steps, the Gallic monks didn't believe that. And and I would I would welcome any theologian to give me an example of a published Christian theologian who holds to that view. So who is it? Who is it out there that's saying, no, we can we can take the first steps without divine grace? And then divine grace comes in later. 
Who actually believes this? I'm still waiting. I'm waiting for the, the theologians, the systematic theologians, to give me an example. They have to create this fictional straw man. So imagine if I one day decided, hey, I'm going to make up a term. I'm going to totally make up a term. Uh, let's call it semi-William Lane Craigianism. And, uh, and, and I'm just going to make up a definition about what it is, right? So who, who is it out there that holds to semi-William Lane Craigianism, right? I mean, that's, it's just, for me, it's like this silly game. Now, of course, the word itself has an origin. Uh, it comes from uh, shortly after the Reformation. The earliest that we know is Theodore Beza, who was a disciple of Calvin, used this term, semi-Pelagian, to describe uh, Catholic debates. And um, but So what's fascinating about this is Beza lived a thousand years after these Gallic monks. A thousand years. The Gallic monks lived closer to the time of Christ than the difference of time when they were labeled semi-Pelagians. Uh, so, you know, I just think, for starters, you're off on the wrong foot. And the Gallic monks believed that Pelagius was a heretic. All three of them explicitly combat and, and fight against Pelagianism. So to describe them as semi-heresy anything is something they would never have embraced. It's never. So, yes, yeah, so let me back up for the sake of the audience, right? So when you get to the 4th century you have Augustine, who's probably, if not the most, one of the top three most influential theologian, Christian teachers of all of church history, right? Because he influences, you know, from yeah. his point forward, and then the Reformers, Luther, Calvin, these guys, they're all looking back to Augustine to to find their kind of theological basis, right? So he's a huge influence. Um, and like you said, I mean, he went on his own faith journey, and, you know, some of his views shaped and molded, but he had an opponent named Pelagius, which is where the yeah. Pelagianism comes from, who right, right. took the opposite radical approach than he did, going, no, we don't have any effects from Adam and Eve, we're completely free, our wills are not bound, we have no guilt, you know, but but there are no effects almost to, I mean, I've never read That's right, so yeah. that's a distinguishing feature to Pelagianism, it's the idea that all of us are created just like Adam, mm -hmm. and that when Adam sinned, there was not a corruption of human nature. So that is a distinguishing position between Pelagianism and Orthodox Christianity. Uh, now, I will, I do want to say this: that there's there's decent evidence that Pelagius himself distanced from this view. Now, one of his disciples, Celestius, perhaps did not, and Julian of Eclanum embraced it. So uh, it's interesting to see how the alleged advocates uh, sometimes get away from those positions and are willing to change their minds, and yet the label sticks. So their reputation is still damaged, even though they, they separate themselves from the position. Yeah, so it's pro the problem, I think, here is that imagine the sliding scale between somebody like that and, you know, somebody like Augustine, who's who is talking about, well, you know, the guilt and the effects and, the, and these sort of things. So how many different variables do you have in between? So it's yeah. like almost like if you're not – 100% in line with him, you're not 100% in line with him, then you're a semi-whatever. You know, yeah, right. Like, yeah. What am I, semi-Augustinian or semi-Pelagianist? You know, like, yeah. sort of and, a deal. And sadly, some of the, uh, the, the systematic theologians, in their attempt to do history, they saw a chronological uh, correlation between the Augustinian and Pelagian controversy and 10 to 15 years later, 
the alleged rise of semi-Pelagianism. And so they say that the semi-Pelagians tried to build a bridge between Pelagius and Augustine. That's not what happened, and, and correlation does not equate to causation, uh, because when you read about John Cassian and his life, where he comes from, he was trained in the Eastern tradition, and he comes over to the West, uh, likely as an assignment from the Pope to recover the, the monastic movement or to give order to the monastic movement uh, in, in southern France, modern-day southern France. So there was no attempt to kind of bridge the middle uh, between Augustinianism and Pelagianism. So uh, it, it's just really poor work by the systematic theologians in understanding this. So, yeah, there you go. So you know, if you find yourself not necessarily agreeing with 100% of Augustine, Augustine or Pelagius, it doesn't make you a semi-Pelagius, right? Right. <laughs> um, I guess we'll have to. We always love to label stuff. That's a problem, right? So yeah, we do like to box things in. It, it makes sense for people. Yeah. I was doing a, a debate against Douglas Wilson. He's a big reform pastor. And uh, <clears throat> the debate was on, does God decree all evil? And even though the moderator had labeled me an Arminian, um, I, I sort of said right away, you know, I, I know that's sort of how the marketing labeled me, but I'm, I'm not an Arminian. And if you read the YouTube comments, it's fascinating because people couldn't box me in. They couldn't figure out what they should, how they should view me. And heaven forbid, they actually have to listen to yeah. what I'm saying to, yeah. to get my view. Uh, so I think it's I think it's good to make pe- people feel uncomfortable and for them to actually put their minds to work and to understand the issues deeper than to oh label let me regurgitate what someone said about that label. So yeah. th- those they can be helpful, but only to a certain degree. Yes, I 100% agree. So let's talk about Dr. J's views. Sure. All right. So so Dr. J, um, where. Where would you say you fall on um, a couple of these topics, right? Um, do we inherit the guilt of Adam and Eve? Um, yeah, I would reject the inheritance of the very guilt of Adam. So what would you accept? Uh, well, what I would say is that uh, someone becomes guilty when they uh, transgress God's law. So I would affirm the age of accountability. Um, so... You know, the, the real question, the particular question is, you know, infants here. What happens to infants when they die? Uh, Adam Harwood, who is a professor at New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary, he's got a great little short book um, uh, on, on the fate of infants. Um, I think it's something like, what is the fate of infants? I'm forgetting. Adam, if you're watching this, forgive me. Um, great little book, though. You can, you can Google it. <clears throat> and he looks at these different views. He looks at um, church history. He does a quick survey of, of church leaders, uh, and then he sort of gets into some Baptists, Baptist discussions on this. And um, so, yeah, great little book. So, yeah, what happens to infants who die? Do they go to hell or do they go to heaven? And, you know, my uncle, he's a pastor, and one of the things he would always ask me as I was, you know, getting into theology, how does this apply? Why does it matter? Well, when we consider how we counsel Christian couples who lose an infant, uh, they might be wondering, you know, is my lost child in heaven or hell? So there is a real application here. Um, now, Reformed Camp has its own position. Uh, I, I question the 
you know, what I say are assertions, you know, can the assertion be grounded? Can it be defended successfully? I don't think it can for their position. Uh, so yeah, I, I would affirm the age of accountability. And uh, so yeah, that gets to the guilt question. But of course, I do believe that we inherit the consequences of Adam's sin. So I do believe in the corrupted human nature. But on, on my understanding, my position, uh, I don't believe, I don't hold to as strong of a legal sense on the corrupted nature uh, being found uh, guilty or liable. Um, yeah, I would agree with just, you on everything you just said. Just, just more like broken. We are broken. We are fallen. Mm-hmm. And we need fixing. We need a doctor. We're sick. So you see some of those motifs in the Eastern tradition, uh, whereas with the Western, it's a more legalistic uh, approach. Yeah, I, I mean, I think anybody who has kids can see right off the bat that they have they have their own little craziness to them. You know, even well, when they they're do. little toddlers. Yes. yes, they do. But but I also want to push back. Sometimes people people erroneously believe that like a baby crying is all of a sudden mm. selfishness. Yeah. And it's like, wait a second, the baby can't even speak a language yet. Yeah. Crying is its form of communication. Mm-hmm. So why should we think? You know, the baby crying is in its attempt to communicate uh, is a selfish desire. It's a very natural desire. Hey, I'm hungry. I need food. You know, mm-hmm. that's a very normal God-given appetite. Yeah. But some people think that crying, like a baby crying is sinful. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> that is not the way we should interpret uh, our experience of, of uh, raising a child. But, you know, to your point, Eventually, you do see some of these truly selfish intentions come forward uh, fairly early on. So, yeah, it's just a matter of, like, when that happens. And, uh, well, all of a sudden, like, are we talking age of accountability? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I'm not I mean, I don't think a two-year-old is age of accountability. <laughs> but, sure, right. <laughs> but I agree with you, like, you know, as far as the, the natural tendencies go, um, you know, because I always tell people, too, like, why does the Bible tell us we have to have self-control? Because the natural tendency is not to have control. Correct. You know? Yes. We we inherit, in the corrupted nature, we inherit a propensity to sin. Mm-hmm. And there may be different degrees on that, um, but I certainly am happy to affirm that. That's our natural inclination. What I would really like one day is for somebody to go into the, to somebody to have a good theological grounding to them. Right, like this, like a good conservative theological grounding, and then go into the um, psychology department and study out, you know, because I think there, there's a supplement to be had there, right? As we look at how how does somebody from the very earliest, like infant stages, how are they affected by the environment that they're in? Because I've seen that. I mean, I've seen that firsthand, up close and personal. You have a child. I mean, a child. And because they are being raised by, you know, one person or two people who are in a very messed up state of life, like that child's already showing effects of trauma, mm. right? And then, and then on top of that, as you go down and, and you think about like the different um, things that young kids might experience, whether it be like sexual trauma or physical abuse, or they just see some really bad things on the street because they're growing up in the ghettos, um, and then how that affects their way of thinking, you know, and then coupling that with the biblical picture of sin and corruption and, and well, those or, or more specifically, you see this in the Old Testament that the sins of the fathers will visit mm-hmm. the generation. Yeah. So what you're talking about in human psychology, the, the ancient biblical authors 
and, and social commentators witnessed it, mm-hmm. you know, that you would see this, this generational curse. Um, and that's why it was important to put a stop to it, because otherwise it's going to be not just a one generation thing, but it'll go on for multiple generations. Now, what's also interesting is in Ezekiel, <clears throat> you see and read that children would not be held responsible for their father's sin. They won't be held guilty for their father's sin. So even though they inherit those consequences uh, and, and they're left to live with that, and of course they have a malformed view, they're not to be held guilty. So, I mean, that 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 encompasses my view of human nature, that we inherit these consequences, but we're not held guilty for our father's sins. Very nice. So then, so then springboarding from that, you always like your your uncle. How does this apply? Well, when we get down to a point of how does salvation happen? Yeah, you know, is it a matter of we have to wait for God to come in and miraculously regenerate us, or is it yeah, a matter yeah. of we go and preach the gospel and the word of God pricks the hearts, coupled with the Holy Spirit, to move us to respond positively, you know, to repentance and accepting Jesus as Lord? Like what? What is going on here, right? Yeah, I think, so if I'm picking up what you're saying, I do perceive a tension between theological positions that um, disincentivize evangelism because of their views of, of, say, election. And so if God has to regenerate the will first and, uh, you know, that's just going to happen on God's own timing— this is a what I'll call a disincentive. There are, of, of course, going to be Calvinists that say, well, no, we still have to evangelize because we're the tool that God uses, and we don't know who's going to be saved. So there's there's an attempt to salvage the position, I'll say. But I, I think it's fair to say it's a disincentive for Calvinists to evangelize, whereas on, uh, on a Wesleyan view uh, or a, a, a Gallic view— uh, it's a lot more open, and and humans, of course, I think, then bear a stronger responsibility to evangelize, uh, because what's going to happen if you don't evangelize? Uh, so, this could this does get into deep philosophical debates on determinism and indeterminism, and what happens to those who don't hear the gospel. And there are some fun articles out there by philosophers on this. <clears throat> uh, so, uh, yeah. So that's as you mentioned there is this tension that's perceived between the theological positions and their application. So theology though is very much a pick your poison game. Uh, I don't think that, you know, my own positions are bulletproof. Uh, they're not nuke proof. Uh, so there are some weaknesses to every theological position. We live in a fallen world. We can only see, you know, through the glasses dimly right now, and we try our best to understand reality. Uh, so, yeah, you sort of have to select which theological model you think best fits the scripture and whose weaknesses you're willing to put up with. <laughs> yeah, that's a very good point. So for anybody who wants to follow up with uh, Dr. J in his studies that he's done, um, you know, the different things that we can glean from you. Tell us about where we can find you online, social media, YouTube. Tell us about those sort of things. So anybody who's in the audience who goes, hey, you know, I want to kind of hear more about what this guy has to say. How can they find you? 
Yeah, you can go to my website, veracityhill.com. I've got a lot of my resources there. All of the 200 episodes of the podcast are embedded there, new videos there. You can subscribe to my Veracity Hill channel at apologetics315.com. Uh, I've got a, a forthcoming uh, a series on abortion that's going to come out exclusively on there for early access. Um, and in particular, that's the case because YouTube announced they were going to start monitoring abortion videos. So, Which I know. actually I can testify that that's 100% true because my channel's monetized and I put up a, I put up a uh, video on abortion like, a, like a month ago and they were like, yeah. no, for ad, like they didn't demonetize it. They just said, you can't put ads on this. Huh. And I was like, okay. Yeah. Well, <laughs> so yeah, there you go. So I don't want to mess with that. I mean, I'll eventually put the videos on YouTube. Um, but you know, I'm, I'm working on growing my following at apologetics 315. And, uh, so then of course other social media, you know, uh, Twitter, Facebook, um, I think I even have a TikTok account. Someone else sort of manages it for me. Um, so uh, what I'll yeah, do so is I'll get I'll get your social media information and your websites and stuff, and I'll link it into the descriptions. You know, if Great. you're watching this on YouTube, listening to it on um, whatever podcast platform, it'll be in the description of the videos. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. So, so a number number of ways folks can get in touch with me. Awesome, Doctor J. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me.